Hi, welcome to On Writing, your uh, bi-weekly podcast, or is it demi-weekly? I don't remember which is the one for every two weeks versus twice a week. On Fortnightly. Writing, fortnightly, excellent. On writing communities and the terrible advice they give. This week, we are talking about one of the big, quote-unquote, writing, quote-unquote, advice communities out there, TV tropes, and the greater concept of taxonomy and writing. My name is Sean, he, him. I am Chad, he, him. I'm MJ, she, her. And I have a new microphone, so I hopefully don't sound like shit anymore. That uh, means we're moving up in the world, baby. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just mean that I dropped my headphones and they broke, and so I had to eventually get new shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> shut up. Uh, so where all this starts? I think the where it starts is in modernism. So we're, it's like 1890, right? Science has conquered the world. You're English. You're at the peak of everything. You're using your like Chilean silver spoon to drink your like Indian tea out of a Chinese cup, right? And you're like, all right, we've solved industry. We've solved uh, travel. Let's solve culture, right? Let's make a big graph that says what culture is, right? Uh, this is the joke from fucking uh, what's the goddamn movie? It starts Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society, right? That mm-hmm. you draw the graph, and if you just compare everything to the set of values, you can determine how good something is. And you might be like, but no one's doing this thing where they compare shit to a graph, and to which I say, fuck you, that's what TV shows is. Well, that's more what Cinema Sins is, right? Like, Cinema Sins is fucking literary modernism in the worst fucking way, right? Like, critical modernism. Yeah, there's uh, also this kind of so there's that, but there's kind of like this weird postmodern defense that always comes up in millennial media for this type of stuff, mm-hmm. where they get really modernist until you call them out on their internalized inconsistencies, and and then they go, "It's just a prank, bro. It's all just it's just post It's just fucking. <laughs> we're just playing with ideas." And I know where the fuck that comes from because Marjorie, mm-hmm. where do TV tropes come from? Buffy, and who wrote Buffy? <laughs> Joss Whedon. And what does Joss Whedon do? The sarcasm. Yeah, we're just, it'll play shit very, look, 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 I'm doing female empowerment. Ignore the fact that it's about women getting beaten to death and it's about sexualized minors, okay? They're empowered sexualized minors with violence, right? Like, look, and this is the whole thing. I'm just saying, Missouri's (laughs) not wrong about everything. Exactly. That it's like (laughs) the fucking nature of Joss Whedon, and we came down on this about fucking Dr. Horrible, right? Because Dr. Horrible does see fucking Penny as the fucking prize of, like, performance of humanity, right? And she Mm -hmm. does die for emotional affect. She is literally fridged, right? Like, in the worst fucking way. But it's still, like, a quote, like, feminist pay-on to, like, bad superhero tropes, right? And it's like, no, actually, it fucking isn't. It's just playing them fucking straight and saying, like, look, it's crazy that, like, the fucking superhero who gets the girl is a dickhead. Wink, right? Like, <laughs> and so it gets to play with it and deploy it unironically that it's using the deconstructive mode to fucking just play shit straight, just fucking kill women and gays and stuff, right? Like, mm-hmm. so what? 
before we talk about specifically what it I've, does. I'm just picturing a Joss Whedon podcast called On Whedon about women and the terrible excuses they give to not sleep with me. Exactly. <laughs> like, and fucking when we were talking about TV tropes earlier, Chad, you had mentioned jumping the shark and growing the beard, which we will get to in a minute. And MJ, what did you say you thought was growing the beard? Oh, fucking the vampire. Yeah, that that's the like, you know what? We've got this metaphor for evil. What if we just uh, sexualize this minor? I think that's probably a good idea, right? Like, you know, what's really funny is that I don't have any experience with the Buffy the Vampire show because and this is going to sound really weird. When I was a wee tot like kindergarten, I used to be sent to uh, this old woman's house who kind of had a small business daycare out of her house with her really big yard. Um, so there'd be like 20, 30 kids of us running around. And she also stole my metal Optimus Prime. Uh, <laughs> that really makes me angry. So, uh, if I, she's got to be dead by now. Cause she was old when I was in kindergarten. So, uh, I'll piss on her grave and then, and then shovel the casket out to see if she was buried with my Optimus Prime. Uh, <laughs> but one of the ways, one of the things that we would watch down in the den was the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Mm-hmm. Now, you may be like, that's an awfully adult movie for, you know, kindergartners and first graders. Well, it really isn't. Mm. Uh, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie has nothing to do with the show whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why Joss, I, I'm sure there's an interesting story there, but I have no idea why Joss Whedon saw this incredibly over-the-top camp movie that's all about this it's really about the silliness of vampire movies it's almost a deconstruction and then went that's it that and the ridiculous name buffy is what we need to tell the iconic long-term vampire slaying chronicles Mm. and so like in that era before you knew everything about a media from the internet before you engaged it. I couldn't shake how shitty and campy the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie was from my head. I was like, why would I watch a TV show about this? Mm. Mm-hmm. So, um, MJ, we need to clear up a bit of why we dislike Buffy in the long run, right? Because uh, okay. I think it was Spike, right? Yes, the the... Spike tries to rape Buffy and gets like a redemption arc and becomes a good guy despite the whole like rape situation thing. Mm-hmm. Cause he's a cool vampire. So are you saying that basically Joss Whedon saw the end of Rocky Four and went at last, if I can just apply this to a rape vampire, I can get my message across about yeah. why they should <laughs> drop the restraining order on me. Right? Like 100%. just this entire thing of all like fine i grabbed her and she said no and had to kick me out of her trailer but if i can change and you can change (laughs) (laughs) like unironically yes right like and this was also categorized by joss uh sexual misconduct to a lot of the talent specifically the younger women talent on set of buffy the vampire who were dropped from the show when they rejected his advances while he was married Right, like mm-hmm. this is this is Joss being a piece of shit, right? Like and using the uh, fucking cast as like a stocked bait pond, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, 
And we've talked about Joss Whedon's only mode being like affirmative deconstruction, right? That he's like, just kidding. And then just plays it fucking straight. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a, this will also factor in later in the episode. There's this TV show called succession and it's currently, it's the best TV show currently running right now. And there's this fantastic part where uh, there's this leak for not Rupert Murdoch. And it's really pissed not Rupert Murdoch off a lot. And mm-hmm. the guy who thinks he may have leaked it is trying to sniff out if he's going to be found out. And he asks his mentor, Tom, uh, played by, I think his name is Matthew McFadden, fantastically. He goes, well, so like, what what are they going to do? Are they going to, are they going to like, how are they going to find the leak? And they're like, oh, I heard they put Ratfucker Sam on it. <laughs> and he goes, well, okay, so Ratfucker Sam, like, is he is he nice? <laughs> Tom looks at him and goes, Are you asking about the moral character of a man named Ratfucker Sam? <laughs> but then he goes, He is a fucking piece of fucking shit, is what he is. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, Joss Whedon popped into my head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh yeah. So let's talk about how we get from affirmative deconstruction to taxonomy, right? Because ta- we must first define taxonomy. Taxonomy is the organization and classification of things, most often in biology, but often in any study of stuff. So, for instance, one of the most useful applications of taxonomy is the Dewey Decimal System, because you have, say, a million books, and you need a way to figure out where a book is, right? Like- <laughs> I'm really glad Sean clarified that, because I thought taxonomy was that weird thing that my grandma did with the cat that she just couldn't accept. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so we do taxonomy all the time, right? Because we say X is, this is X and this is Y. And the things that are X have these certain characteristics and lack these certain characteristics. And Y, which is similar, might have this set of characteristics, but lacks this other set of characteristics. Right, but then like, we go in and make an episode called Genre is Fake and undermine ourselves and start drinking. It, exactly. <laughs> but that's about how genre is a false taxonomy, right? That ta- right. genre is tradi- is used to determine how to market things. It's not used. It's not a fucking characteristic within the work, right? Like it's not a self-manifesting right. way. It's more valuable to publishers than it is to authors. Yeah. The, the, the classic taxonomical question is like describe a chair in such a manner as it includes all things that are chairs and no things that are not chairs, right? And it's basically fucking impossible, right? And so you very much end up in the, like, uh, I know uh, the definition of porn is I know it when I see it, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, that it it's just literally about recognition and social order, right? It's not about, like, I've invented a fucking thought structure that encompasses all things, right? So what is TV trope? TV tropes is a big taxonomy grid where you invent a trope or you locate a phenomenon inside a work of media and then you say what the definition of that is and then you fucking put every single thing in the world in it. And everything in the world in it will either have the trope, have a subversion of the trope, or not have the trope. And so you've created a taxa, a system of organization of the whole fucking cultural world that fits into possession or lack of these narrative characteristics. Now, Mm -hmm. the big problem is these narrative characteristics mean fucking nothing. (laughs) 
It's true. It's true. Their their categorization is all colloquialisms that you would never think to look up. And and the specification of the qualities that get it, you know, taxonom taxonomically assigned or categorized are like so fucking vague. Uh just for instance, I, so it's actually useless to try to identify something on TV tropes by the trope unless you know the name of the trope, which is kind of self-defeating. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't describe a trope. You have to uh, the the only real way to find a trope from base zero if you're starting at the base is uh to locate find a piece a, of media that you know yeah. has it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, I, I did this not too long ago. I looked up the movie uh, Snatch because mm-hmm. uh, I was I felt that there are certain overlaps between the villain in that and Gibbs. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if TV troops would have a series of troops that applied to Gibbs. Well, like the tropes in that amount to basically like character is villainous. Yeah. And I would also say that like that he would be uh, talking about Bricktop in Snatch, right? Uh, was kind of affably evil um, fucking names to run away from really fast. I'm trying to think of just like the set of TV tropes things that would throw on him, right? Like, yeah, it's not really that much or that interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so reductive, too. Uh, uh, like it takes I feel this has to be related to a broader point somewhere uh, but it creates this categorization and basically says that's it there's nothing more to read into here because you have it in a category now this guy Hmm. is just affable villain there's nothing else here and because he's affable villain he's also like the Joker and he's also like uh Hell, if you want to be a real fucking idiot, you can also say he's just like Michael Douglas in Falling Down, uh, because he's kind of affable at times. He's like uh, Emmett Selk in Final Fantasy XIV. Yeah, meanwhile, like, uh, yeah, meanwhile, it's like the only thing that these characters have in common is that they have above nine on their charisma stat on their character sheet. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, I would also say the judge in fucking Blood Meridian is also, yeah. like, weirdly affable. At, like. Uh, God, I'm trying to think of who else could fall in this category and be completely out of the way. Like Jareth from Labyrinth, right? Like, mm. like you've got a whole heap of this shit and the the communication of antagonistic but kind of friendly doesn't inform you anything about the fucking character. Mm-hmm. Right, and if you're a writer engaging with this database of jargon and local colloquialisms, it also doesn't equip you with any of like the critical thinking tools necessary in order to figure out how to construct the character of that ilk. Um, so, so you, you look up snatch and you go, I'd like to write a character like this. And you find out that it's all like, yeah, other characters that share this trait is Hans Landa. And it's like, well, hang on. No, these are, these are two wildly different characters in construction. What's, What's the ur document here? Okay, where what is the foundational level on which I construct this? Now, the funny thing is 
is that TV tropes falls into that same ludicrous thing that we were talking about with cinema sins, where as soon mm-hmm. as you go, well, this is maddeningly unhelpful. Their response is, dude, it, it's all just for the funnies and the memes. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, that's not true. That's not true. You are strangely quantum in your reaction. Okay. Because mm-hmm. if I didn't say that this is useless, you, and this happens all the time. If you don't, uh, lead with this is useless they explain how useful it is that mm-hmm. it's it's a joke and it shouldn't be taken seriously is entirely a defense mechanism for its own lack of internal scrutiny mm-hmm. you'll also find a shitload of people on writing communities who will link a fuckload of tv tropes pages saying i want to write something with these tropes right like that will structure their ideas in terms of tropes and it's like that's okay, I guess, but we've developed a kind of weak version of the Sapir Wharf hypothesis where you think the quantum building blocks of story are tropes rather than you know the story, right? Like if you take affable, evil, whimsical fairy tale and like uh portal fantasy, you end up again with either Final Fantasy 14 Shadowbringers or uh Labyrinth. And they are there is nothing in common between the two of those other than like Ubulets, right? Like <laughs> Ubulets. I fucking can't say it either. Yeah, here, here you go. And they always use also that disclaimer. It, it's weird because they're very fork-tongued about this. They have that disclaimer. Tropes aren't bad. We aren't criticizing. Everything uses tropes. It's all about how you use the tropes. And yet it's also largely a community about lambasting anybody that obviously leans into these tropes. So like mm-hmm. uh it was lampshading for instance which what can you infer from the term lampshading what the fuck could that possibly mean mm-hmm. and and if you're not in touch with the colloquialisms and the lingo of tv tropes you can come up with some good ideas about what lampshading could mean I, okay this is why when we fucking find dinosaurs we have to name them in latin okay yeah so that we're all on the same fucking page and apparently what we found out is uh, thanks to Latin, we know that the T-Rex has the coolest name, but apparently is not the biggest or the baddest dinosaur to have ever lived. Thanks, God Latin. damn it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but so, so here's a post from r slash writing. My favorite writing source, TV Tropes, has a good point about using tropes. It isn't a bad thing. Uh, you, if you ever need approval, approval from TV Tropes, we're past the touch grass point. Go find a place that sells coffee, sit down and just start talking to random people. Well, the <laughs> other fucking thing about it is that, like, it's not a limited taxa. So anything you write will be a trope, right? Like shit like that's totally fucking out there, like uh, the the older works of Go Nagai or like abstract cinema, cinema dell'arte or fucking um, even shit like uh, non-narrative experiences like the the robot that like cleans up after itself right like these are all things that after they exist can have tropes describe them right because it's impossible to escape a fucking evolving taxonomy you can fucking write something totally without tropes and then it's going to be full of tropes because people will add your fucking thing to tv tropes right like mm-hmm. it's inescapable right and and it's also weird because you kind of just have to ignore it. So somebody says, it doesn't matter if you know a trope, much less if you twist or invert it. It's something common 
and that's it. It's unimportant. For the most part, for the most part, I would say to hobbyist writers, young writers, new and emerging writers, just ignore the idea that the word trope exists. Don't let it form a dialectical part of your writing. Because the the word trope, especially in the context of TV tropes, exists almost as a marketing term for the TV tropes community. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have decided that you want a character who fits into like the Darth Vader archetype, in fact, A, do it. B, focus on the word archetype, not trope. Uh, especially because uh, it's been an emergent thing over the past several years where people will, now that, now that they're armed with this idea that uh, tropes aren't inherently bad, it's just how fiction is made, you get people that go to TV tropes and Build-A-Bear their characters from it, but you're Build-A-Bear in it from like a horrifyingly non-academic, zero-scrutinous, zero-peer-reviewing source. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, they, there's no rigor in there at all. And, and like, it depends upon itself so much. We talked about fucking the vampire slash growing the beard versus jumping the shark. And it, it wants to do it all at once. So jumping the shark is a term of certain value because it's so ubiquitous. Everybody uses it and they've been using it since the fawns. Happy jumped days. The shark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at that point, it's like an industry term at this point. So you have to know what it is. TV tropes fills an important role of explaining the historicity of the word and where it originated and how it's evolved over the years. Um, I would say a combination between uh, following the history of jumping the shark and coining the term flanderization are probably the two most significant contributions of TV troops. We got one more. We got one more. What's that? (gasps) McGuffin. Okay. So listen to me, you little shits. MacGuffins don't functionally exist. MacGuffins don't real, not not sane. I, now, you may go, um, excuse me. Okay, I happen to know for a fact that the briefcase in Pulp Fiction is a MacGuffin. It is. Next question, right? I have seen so often lately people attributing any plot point that doesn't met out the level of significance that they have internally assigned to it to call it a MacGuffin or anything that motivates the plot a MacGuffin. Why have you done this ridiculous thing? That is not mm-hmm. a MacGuffin. MacGuffins. Yeah. MacGuffins. Okay. I, I am fast approaching my swear quota. Sean, would you be willing to explain what a MacGuffin actually is when it's used correctly? Sure. A MacGuffin is something that is a plot object, the object of the plot with no narrative function, right? So, for instance, the the briefcase in Pulp Fiction doesn't do anything, right? It's not desired for any particular reason. It doesn't operate or have any effect. It's just the wanting of it is what makes things occur in the plot, Right. Uh, but if you go on the MacGuffin page on TV tropes, you will see things like, you know, the Holy Grail from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is not a MacGuffin because it's the Holy Grail. And it mm-hmm. does specific shit in the context of that fucking movie. Like you want it because it does X and it 
performs X during the movie, during the film, right? Like the the hot Nazi doesn't just want it because like it's evil and stuff, right? Like, good God. Um, and the reason I'm loving the is- idea of some Nazis opening up a briefcase and going, is that what I think it is? <laughs> and, like, uh-huh. and that's it. Yeah. And like when you get down to it, MacGuffin is used at to describe any object of the plot. I've even seen the Black Cauldron in the Black Cauldron <laughs> described as a MacGuffin, whereas like the specific mechanical functionality of it is like 99% of what it does, right? Where you're like, the fucking Horned King is going to get the magic WMD and here's how it works by raising the army of the dead in this way. Same thing with the, the new Evil Dead series coming out, the, the Necronomicon, right? Like it's a MacGuffin because he needs to go get it. Yeah, it also does these specific things. It's a device or thing, if you will. <laughs> I it drives me fucking bananas. Um and I think I know what ground zero is for uh misunderstanding MacGuffins, and it's a nineties era review of the nineteen seventy seven Star Wars where people referred to R2-D2 and possibly the Death Star plans as a MacGuffin, which is funny because I can see where the breakdown is because it feels like it at first, but then it is aggressively not a MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. Right. I, so at no point in Pulp Fiction with possibly the greatest MacGuffin of all time, uh, at no point did anybody receive any value or identify what was in the briefcase, and they achieved no value from it, and they didn't even turn it in. Uh, well, I guess there's kind of a scene in the background where somebody turns it in. Uh, but it it doesn't do anything. It's not identified in any way. Everything is tangled up around the fact that characters want it to generate additional plots. Yeah, the plots are not about it. It's just kicking off the plots. R two D two and the Death Star plans turn out they do things and they're really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they are like fully not a fucking MacGuffin because they have instrumental fucking facts about them, right? Like yeah. that we know their origin and they're like the MacGuffin is resolved before the end and does explain the plot. Because it fucking says you got to go down this fucking tube. And once you're down the rectangular tube that they put guns in, like, then there'll be a little hole and you got to shoot the photon torpedoes in the hole and it'll make them go down because there's powerful photon suction around that hole. I know it says an exhaust vent, but it's actually an exhaust vent, right? Like, uh, yeah. And like, that is fucking as specific and articulate to the plot as you can fucking get. But- yeah, and it's funny because if you go into screenplay writing class equipped with TV Troops definition of MacGuffin and all of its MacGuffin subtroops, uh, the professor is going to listen to you, nod, and then write zero on your paper. <laughs> no MacGuffin, no winner. Neither side has the MacGuffin in the end. It's been destroyed, lost, or discovered to be fake. That that at the very least is the closest you have so far to the concept of a MacGuffin, and yet that's not a MacGuffin. That's a plot. Mm-hmm. Same thing with like artifact of doom. If the object is inherent, 
itself is inherent, but at the same time can prove to be pure evil, which can result in insanity, death, or worse. That means it's a fucking device. Artifact of hope. Uh, demanding their head. A bounty is placed on a specific orders to cut off their head and return with it. I'm sorry. A character's fucking head is not a MacGuffin in any context, I would say. <laughs> right? Like, the fuck? Because it's always contextualized and it has the fucking history of that character, right? Like, if a character's been dead for all eternity and they just want the head for abstract conceptual reasons, then sure, then yes. But if, like, it's a living character and someone wants them dead and or possessed by definition that's a plot so like I well think it worth- also can't be a macguffin if it remains central to the plot once the plot has kicked off yeah once mm-hmm. you've got the fucking thing then it's no longer a macguffin right like it's- right like by by this definition this is part of the problem with having like no internalized vetting and not being able to reject things is the fact that like by definition by the rules imposed by tv tropes uh natalie portman is a fucking macguffin in uh leon the professional i thought you were gonna say in pirates of the caribbean uh no that was her handmaiden kira knightley oh fuck i get him fucked up all the time whatever yeah, so did new both gun ray both, yeah okay i guess you're right both of them, okay both of them are fucking macguffins in that thing right because it's like uh we need need her blood bootstrap bill's blood to, to, to leaven the curse right like uh Versus her being the the fucking assassination like object subject thing, right? Um, baby ninja in training, uh, yeah. And I think that it's worth going back to talking about things like jumping the shark, right? Because jumping the shark is used fucking entirely colloquially. Because what is jumping the shark? Jumping the shark is when the fawns jumps over the shark, and that everyone's like, okay, anything they do is going to be less than that because that's the most epic shit you've ever done ever, yeah. right? You can't do right. more well, epic shit. And the tone has now fundamentally changed. Yeah, right? it like, doesn't we mean, can't we can't uh, go back to what it was before it jumped the shark. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's the point at which the series is ruined, right? Just that the point at which the series has outscaled itself. Uh, and so people talk about Marvel movies jumping the shark all the time, but they don't talk about Infinity War as jumping the shark, right? Because that was the fucking actual shark jumping point, and they can't build back up to another one of those because they only get that once, right? Yeah, once once you've undone the genocide of the universe through Time War, mm-hmm. like that, I don't think I actually <laughs> don't. Short of the Avengers, have to kill God to overcome that. Yeah, like, uh, and even then, I think God. that killing God is actually less stakes in the Marvel universe, right? You have to because Stanley's already fucking dead, like in the ground for real. Uh, so <laughs> there's not a lot of mileage there. And so I've seen this specific and articulate criticism that such and such is a MacGuffin. You shouldn't have this MacGuffin, or like I get it, you're looking for this MacGuffin, right? Like, and this kind of like is fundamentally not shop talk for writing right using just lit naming tropes is not shop talk for writing and we've talked about having internal language to talk about this stuff because tv tropes is the opposite right we talk about the sapphire war hypothesis that if you don't have a word for something it's harder to think about that thing and if you have a word for something it's more easy to think about concepts in those lines right TV tropes creates a whole fucking language that's fucking useless. That's fucking dog shit. It doesn't matter that like Sasuke Uchiha is like the blue Oni to Naruto's red. It's not going to help you write Naruto and it's not going to fucking help you write anything the fuck else. Right? Like 
it's it's inconceivably useless. Now, of course, as an exercise in fun categorization, just pure taxonomy, sure, but it never becomes that. It always fucking expands out and contaminates these things because people with a little bit of knowledge about something go full fucking Dunning-Kruger on it to think because they understand the taxonomy of the elements of the work, not the work itself, they understand something about the work and worse yet, they understand something about writing in general. Because they can identify a trope in a work, which again, every work is full of tropes. If you show me fucking, I can write three new trope pages for most noble animal and then find common examples throughout fucking other works, right? Like, it's uncomplicated to do this thing. It does not require any motherfucking critical thing. No. No, and that sounds problematic for a number of reasons. Yeah. Uh... And I think the thing that I want to say that's kind of funny, but it is the fucking true thing, is that there's one thing where taxonomy replaces critical thinking, and it's uh, racism. Racism is literally, by definition, taxonomy replacing fucking critical So, mm-hmm. like, don't be fucking racist. Don't believe in your fucking magical taxonomy rather than recognizing shit one by one. <laughs> Am I saying if you read TV tropes, you're racist? I mean, kind of, but no, I'm kidding. Uh, like, I think Joss Whedon is, considering there's, like, I don't know, maybe three black characters in all his work, right? Like, and they're always I, uh, like they I, always I, have that TV trope basic about them. So it's funny because I will never jump on. Uh, I will never jump on the representation that occurs inside of a writer's work to determine what their uh, their actual views are on that type of thing. Um, however, if you told me that Joss Whedon says you when like a black dude is serving him at a restaurant, I totally believe it. Just like <laughs> belief, just like 105%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, um, MJ, I think you want to come into this conversation a little bit, or I want to bring you into it. Cause like, there's no fucking like taxonomy doesn't fucking exist in like the pedagogy of writing. Right. There's no part at which you like identify tropes. Right. You have like, writing with specific devices on, on themes, but you never, like, write a red-oni, blue-oni story, right? No, I mean, you, you, I think the in academia, the word tropes does exist, and it, it usually describes conventions, or, um, like, not, and it's, it's not used just for genre fiction that has, like, formulaic things. It's also just used within, like, this is the convention of love poetry that you can, you know, the moon shows up. This is, like, a, a, a standard thing that people do. And I think knowing, like, historically in writing what moves have been done, like, if you, I really like talking about, like, Shakespeare's sources, like, where Shakespeare got most of his ideas for his plays or what, um, which source, like, he was using of the variety of mythology about different things or whatever. And so knowing like the, the, the template of the story of, you know, um, Antony and Cleopatra, for instance, like you, there is a template that exists and you get to do shit within that world. And that's like a good writing exercise, but that's not just the convention. That's like the storytelling and that's the conflict. That's the character. That's like, you know, it's, it's much more complex. Mm -hmm. This is definitely where, uh, Sean and I become. Uh, start to butt heads because he can smell filthy modernism on me. Uh, I I'm a strong believer in the idea that uh, you can be as post-structuralist and death of the author as you want. You can be as post-modernist as you want. You can you can 
adopt Warhammer terms and say, I believe in the literary school of seizing the initiative, <laughs> um, whatever you want to do, you go for it. But when you're constructing something, you need to rely on devices, tools. Uh, it, you do not just go arc survival evolved out there and like pick up a rock and punch a tree with it. Yeah, uh, and I think that fucking postmodernism, poststructuralism, they they subscribe to this like very heavily because they say that art's not like a fucking process of like inspiration and transcription, right? But like that it is constructed of all these devices, and that's why the primary mode of like poststructuralism and postmodernism is deconstruction, right? Now. People don't fucking understand what a deconstruction is because they say shit like Nier Automata is a deconstruction. Nier Automata is not a fucking deconstruction, right? It's like the video game is the video game to ever fucking live, right? Like it loves its game abstractions. It does not be like Nier Gestalt was like, hey, isn't it fucking crazy the way video games are, right? That was a deconstruction. <laughs> this one where you're like, holy shit, video games, not a deconstruction. Right. And this is important because you have to fucking construct something before you can deconstruct it. Right. And if near Automata's whole thesis is that the importance of playing video games is playing video games, it's not like fucking rendering down the bits into its component like gelatin and fat and blood and like pointing out the absurdity that all of these things make a horse at the end of the day. Right. Yeah, and uh, I think it's also not spec ops alike. It's also not spec ops alike, right? Like normal deconstruction is at its worst. Worst, like normally you would do X, but now we're making pointing out that X is pretty dumb, huh? And like that's not very effective as far as deconstruction did goes, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah, the, well, it's kind of like how how uh, parody with malice has very little value to me. Uh, Obviously, with certain key exceptions of like Jonathan Swift esque satire in the face of failing other options and attempting to make somebody look some at something a certain way. But I got to tell you, when like, when like you're making a now that he's going to die in prison, if you make a parody of Harvey Weinstein, there's like nothing inherently bold about what you're doing. Uh, uh, it was, it was bold when Seth MacFarlane called him out at the Oscars. And, and Harvey Weinstein could have gone to war with him. Mm -hmm. It's not bold to go, look, I made a fat, ugly slob that nobody likes that wants to Jabba the Hutt it up all over women now. And it's like, okay, well, that like that's what we all think of him anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, parody? I, on the inverse, there's Hail Caesar mm -hmm. uh, by the Coen brothers, which is a fantastic example of parody with affection while acknowledging absurdity. And Hail Caesar is a film that's basically all about how fucking zany late 50s, early 1960s Hollywood was. Mm -hmm. um, and and going, yes, it was absurd and it was weird, but we grew up on it and we loved it. Mm -hmm. uh, that tends to take a little more effort because just being negative about something isn't that hard. Uh, watch, I don't like the way that... Uh, Sean is shit talking Vermintides in Total War Three. Boom, easy. <laughs> uh, so, and deconstruction also has this habit of making the person attempting to deconstruct feel like they're a lot smarter than they actually are because because they're like, look, I've deconstructed something that everybody loves. These are the base components, and it's like, wow, holy fuck, you discovered the point of the media. Yeah. Wow. 
There's also a, a caveat where when I said deconstruction is the postmodern mode, postmodern has been like a dominant mode since like the fucking God, I don't know, the 80s. So it's like most things have been thoroughly fucking deconstructed at this point. You need to be inventing new shit to deconstruct, right? Like <laughs> you need to be engaged in affirmative construction or else mm-hmm. you end up in this fucking recursive like deconstruction to deconstruction to deconstruction to deconstruction times infinity. That's super duper unproductive. Where it you end up in the not like your dad's fantasy novel, which is also an advertised as not like your dad's fantasy novel, repeat every three years to infinity. Yeah, uh, it that so I'm going to point out how American exceptionalism has killed the written word. <laughs> Fair. Uh whether you believe in American exceptional or not. I, American exceptionalism or not is like completely irrelevant. You have to acknowledge that there's a culture of rugged individualism and American exceptionalism that exists if you live in the United States. And there are even parts of Canada, Mexico, and the UK that also angrily believe in that. Um, This has meant that as an act of sacred worship as an American, you must make something exceptional and new because conformity means drinking England's tea instead of throwing it in the harbor. Mm-hmm. And you may think that that's being silly, but there is a direct connection between the American brain and thinking that you're signing against the sun. You're signing against the sons of Liberty in Boston Harbor. Um, conformity is not as bad as Pink Floyd made it out to be. <laughs> It's not oh, it's not great all the time, but like like everything else that I recommend, and this is any philosophy, this is any philosopher, this is any tool, this is anything. You take things in doses. You don't swallow the entire thing, uh, because it worked for them. Uh, far scarier than somebody who is an avowed objectivist is somebody who just believes everything that Ayn Rand said when Ayn Rand didn't believe everything Ayn Rand mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for instance, about fidelity or social security. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and like. It. So. So when I say conform, I'm not saying conform up to the part where you're like, so I I put in my order with Hugo Boss and. Uh, no, fuck. And I broke Goldstein's window. What's next? Yeah, no. Uh, that's that's not what I mean by conformity, but you have to conform to certain standards like and and it to get slightly political for a second. This is where a lot of brain rot is kicking in, where it's all like, well, do you believe in capitalism or socialism? Because this country works a certain way or should work a certain way. And it's all like, my dude, the farmers are subsidized. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so we've accepted that we'll take a little from multiple wells. Well, okay. also the farms are massive conglomerates, right? There's no fierce yeah. individual farmer out there, right? Like, yeah. uh, or if there is, they're a fucking abstraction, right? They're the they're a person selling their like hand engraved pennies at the the fucking flea market. They're not the person <laughs> selling the cabbage at the fucking grocery store, right? If you go to the grocery eagle, none of that shit was grown by like an individual farmer. Uh, they were grown by an agricultural engineer working for like a company that might be owned by one or many people, right? <laughs> yeah, and and like, well, I would like a parcel to be that is in my possession to be in the possession of somebody else. Well, you are going to conform 
to getting that little stamp and getting that type of envelope and giving it to that state service to do it. Like you, you make these concessions in every day of your life. And if you're on the, the more socialist side, you make concessions with the fact that somebody isn't allowed to enter your home. Uh, people don't have free use on your home. People don't have free use of your objects and people don't have access to your bank account and things like this. You're making these concessions every day without swallowing an entire thing. And you should do that with your fucking writing too. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I think we, you had an idea for an alternative taxonomy in, right? Yes. Yes. And this is kind of what I'm building up to at some point after the fact that you're all tainted by socialism and capitalism. All of you, none of you are clean. Oh Christ. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wash yourself in either a private or state river. <laughs> uh, the uh, it, it goes into conformity because you're accepting the people before you have built things that have value, right? And that maybe they were onto something, and that with every single creation that we make, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And you need to not let that ticking American exceptionalism in your brain that you think I have to do something so different because novelty itself doesn't have intrinsic value. Novelty has value, but not intrinsic value. You'll hear me say this a lot on this podcast of no intrinsic value. Meaning I think that there's something that's worth throwing out here, and that's that it's not just American exceptionalism, right? That like almost every culture has a premise of hashtag not like the old shit, not your dad's whatever, <laughs> right? Like, um, with the exception of certain kinds of fucking, um, certain kinds of cultural organizations. So for instance, like uh, sermon writing right doesn't necessarily aspire to novelty but even then you'll see it in a lot of like telepastors have a lot of like well this isn't your grandma's jesus right like <laughs> that they'll bring that i didn't think he was changing that much yeah i thought he kind of the whole point yeah. he figured out his shit and then he did his shit right like <laughs> always die for your sins every time yeah, always uh, be dying for sins, right? Like the 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 past imperfect or whatever, the right? Because um, when I picture this ain't your grandma's Jesus, I'm picturing that like he fucking high five Peter after he cut that fucking dude's ear off. Yeah, right? <laughs> he maybe teabags the temple guard. <laughs> he pulled fucking mad air off the temple mount, right? Like <laughs> exactly. He ran off this Mary Magdalene to Vegas. It was fine. Yeah, dude. Yeah. This is Jesus extreme. <laughs> yeah. And this is obviously a fucking joke in everything from like Simpsons to family guy to like various fucking like pretty low brow, like not difficult comedy because it's a fucking easy joke to make. And yet it's a fucking unironic thing that people say a lot. Right. Um, and these premises about like novelty valuing extend way, way beyond like writing right down to like advertisement and like cars and stuff right that they invent all sorts of new bullshit that's not actually better than any of the old bullshit so friends like delorean doors right fucking gullwing doors are like worse than normal doors right for a whole lot of reasons and yet they're like that's fucking novel i love that shit right like and this also just goes to a kind of like uh, well, isn't that funny about the DeLorean is that individually those doors have no value. Only their association with Back to the Future has value. Yeah, but it then people put them on like thing, a fucking Tesla or whatever, yeah, right? It took a new thing mocking them to add value to a novelty. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. the, 
that back it, the before Back to the Future, the DeLorean was like a comic piece of shit that everyone's like, this fucking sucks, bro. Right. And that Doc Brown making a DeLorean into a fucking time machine was funny. because It would be like someone making a piece of shit car now into a DeLorean. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, into a into a time machine. Right. And um, so when we say don't privilege novelty just don't fucking privilege novelty if your fucking work is a huge fucking ripoff of something or is like a barely barely filed the serial numbers off fanfic that yeah fucking get some novelty have an original idea yourself but like your original idea doesn't have to be that like naruto and sasuke are like dragons now right like that doesn't happen Right. Well, and there's a novelty creep that happens in Western media that is so fucking frustrating where people write themselves out of good stories because they're like, "Ooh, but a story has those things in it. And it's like, well, all stories have all things in it. And the reason I kind of beat up on the West about this is because Japan and China both approach this very differently, mm-hmm. where Japan emphasizes uh, mastery of skills and repetition. And then attempting to apply novelty to mastered skills and concepts. And China just straight up fucking deifies emulation. This, yeah. you know, this was the cornerstone to how a man was almost sold. Uh, what's his name's harmonica? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the fucking art thing, right? Uh, and yeah. that dude was unironically a hugely talented painter in that, uh, that art heist thing, right? Yeah. Uh, where he was uh, faking uh ironically like modernist paintings right mm-hmm. yeah. uh, like rothko specifically i believe yeah uh, he was yeah, really it, really it good was, at it yeah it was a chinese guy in a shed who would just paint rothko's all day going this is the easiest fucking shit i've ever done in my entire <laughs> life and he could do them so well that it fooled rothko's son now yeah. i'm gonna i'm going to take the potentially unpopular opinion here and say that rothko fuck sucked uh, no, uh, i fucking like bro. okay there's it, it it led to a specific joke have you seen knives out glass onion mm-mm. he's got a rothko upside down uh, and you if you're a fucking big modern art nerd you can be like that's fucking upside down and like when we were watching it i was like mj that fucking he's got the fucking rothko upside down <laughs> and i looked it up and yep it was he was fucking got it upside down right like so there is an identifiable Walia of Rothko. Well, no, sure. I just okay. I think that Rothko deeply appeals to exactly the type of people the CIA wanted Rothko to appeal to. I yeah, I don't disagree. I think we are uh, all that. Perhaps maybe we are all hot and dots, right? Like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, but it this was able. Part of the reason they they got a Chinese national to come in and do this from his shed is because there's an idea that novelty doesn't have as much value as be as recreation Mm -hmm. and novelty does have a certain amount of valence in chinese culture but it also has a fucking there's a also a privileging of historicity right of continuity that i think that's what's absent because it's not like they don't value novelty but that they also value this other thing right like uh, and that's why this other thing is missing and that's why i try to scoop from both personally Mm. right like hey there actually is skill in being able to write precisely like F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. And once you've mastered that, there's skill in doing something new with Fitzgerald's voice that he never thought to do. Uh, but don't write yourself into a corner because you're so obsessed with going, well, okay, but here's the thing. Blade Runner 
had somebody that didn't want to die. Oh, wow, man, you have just, if that's your line, you have just, you have fucked your ability to write anything, haven't you? Uh, with Mass Effect 3 obviously being like the greatest horror to ever come out of video games <laughs> where somebody both simultaneously wanted to do something novel and derivative and didn't realize that the best part is, is that Mass Effect 3's ghastly ending was a consequence of a producer who had just watched the obscure niche film uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and thought he was going to pull a fast one on everybody by creating a novel concept of this little known film by an unknown director called like Stan Kubrick or something. Uh, <laughs> but what he didn't realize is that he also dropped the football and just recreated fucking Matrix 3. Mm. So like he plagiarized unknowingly to create something that was too novel mm -hmm. in part because he was scared of seeming derivative from his own ip holy shit casey holy shit <laughs> now sean was talking about my internalized taxonomy and i'll admit that i don't have like a website where you can go to look at my taxonomy but the way that i approach the craft of writing comes from a series of relatively uh, categorized tools and methods of how a story is constructed. The one that's had Sean hung up lately is is a term that I use to describe what's uh, a, they would call it a trope. I call it a device. It's called uh, I call it a pulley. What functionally is a pulley, Sean? Uh, a pulley is a system by which uh, linear motion is translated to another direction or the same direction through a series that reduces the weight on the final thing by changing the vectors to apply to fix or moving apparatuses in space. Yes, I was transfixed on the pulley in Jurassic Park when Gennaro is trying to go into the cave to talk about Hammond not being there and Alan wants to come, but in the back, there's some dude pulling some water up with a pulley. And I'm like, that is so fucking cool. Uh, <laughs> I, I was, it's weird how impressed I was by physical science at that age in a movie about dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. uh, but I digress. A pulley in a piece of writing is something where its existence is meant to uh, shift the weight, redistribute the weight. So that you don't have so that you don't have to put in the same amount of effort in order to achieve a certain success. So when I ranted several episodes ago about Deadwood and people going, these two characters are gay. And I'm like, no, that's stupid. Maybe they're gay, but not for each other. <laughs> um, it's it's because uh, you are attempting to substitute doing the work by implementing a pulley to do the work for you. Now. You sometimes you need a pulley. Sometimes you need to put something in whose entire job is to just make something go right now so that because your editor went, I talked to you about this. 90,000 words. 90,000 words is what this is going to be. This 250,000 word shit, get some pulleys in there. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to be aware of if too much of your story writing is being hoisted by a pulley. If you're relying on on and OK, so why why are the two men being gay? A pulley. Because by simply saying that these are two men in love, you now know why he's sad mm -hmm. uh, when one of them dies. It, it just cleans house of everything else. 
You don't have to put in any work to describe intimacy. You don't have to engage the reader in any way. It's kind of like a mechanical show, don't tell situation. Um, uh, but getting a little more into the nuance because show don't tell feels a little too much like TV troops. Uh, unfortunately, one day, eventually, the pulley itself will become used like jumping the shark or growing the beard or a TV trip itself. But be aware of that when you're creating something. Find out does. Uh, I, I talked to Sean once. I write about lesbian characters relatively frequently, and that's kind of a pulley mechanism. Mm-hmm. The reason I write about lesbians sounds like, oh, a fucking dude just loves the lesbians. No, it's because it's actually a really simple, quick shorthand that allows two characters to be in an intimate relationship where I don't have to spend any time explaining power dynamics. I mean, over here, MJ and I can both say, well, like, we just like lesbians, dude. That's like what we're here for, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> True. Uh, I don't like anything except writing. So, <laughs> and so, city like, builders, right? <laughs> because they facilitate writing. Yeah, okay, that's true. <laughs> um, right, so, so that's uh, power dynamic is another important thing to keep to, to keep in mind when you're designing taxonomies because or when you're writing, it's a it's a categorization to keep in mind when you're writing because power structures and power dynamics, not in the political way, in the actual way of how it's adding weight to your story, affects the way that your story is ultimately molded and will consume words. When when a badass woman and a badass woman are together, there's no question of where one stands in society. There's no question of like could one just beat the absolute shit out of the other, uh, and that's why they're there. And these questions exist in the backs of fucking readers' minds. And that's why I was like, ha shortcut right through the lesbians. Yeah. Now none of these questions are there. They're just there because they like each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them's a pirate. And the other one's yeah. a bounty hunter, who is also a pirate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And none of this is a none of this is like one of those weird Tumblr criticisms of like, you know, the heterosexual relationship is actually the most predatory. It's that sometimes you have to put in a little more work in order to like justify it. And if you don't think that that's true, they spent like two whole movies going, okay, here's why it's okay that Han Solo and Princess Leia are gonna fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because it's not just Han Solo that they had to explain. They had to explain why he's not kidnapping her and why she actually has agency. They had to explain why she's not using her money in order to lure this guy in that has a lot of bad debts. Right. Mm-hmm. If you look at it in that way, you realize how much work actually has to be going, has to be gone into achieving the basis of just having an a relationship where both characters have equity in the relationship with each other. Including the the imagination that Leia must end up with someone, and so we have to flag down one with incest, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just throw a flag on that play, right? (laughs) It's it's really funny because I I swear I'm more defensive of my characters than I am of like, demographics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which, you can can decide if I'm evil for that. I don't care. Uh, I'm I'm not a congressman. (laughs) but like i give a shit about like how i design my characters and whatnot and i hate that notion of like the woman is the prize that has to be won because uh every single character character, you can fucking get down there into the meat and potatoes and there is so much you can scrape out of a character for utility and to better service your story and to make something beautiful and if not just the dehumanization aspect, because, okay, I don't necessarily agree that somebody's going to read a book where somebody got a woman as a prize and went, wow, women shouldn't vote, right? Like, I don't think it works like that. Mm. Uh, but I do, I, I do think that your work 
fucking sucks when your characters aren't people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which fortunately helps me in my politics because, like, how do you think about like gays getting married? Like, I don't fucking care. Let the people do what the people are hold. Fuck off. I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think the premise for that one is like, it, I don't know, is the government making the document or the church? Okay, the government. Yeah. Then I think the fucking government should do whatever the fuck people ask it to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> at, at its, yes, at its most absolute basic without getting to all of like the Proposition 8 fucking arguments. Yeah. Uh, but like at, it, at its core, you so TV tropes robs you of the depth of your characters by resigning them into a series of, as Sean put it, like quasi racist categorizations where something can't exist outside of the definition that a joking website uh that doesn't know what a MacGuffin is assigned uh attributes and qualities to it. And that's fucking stupid. When when you can uh God, I hate to keep going back to most noble animal, but it's the most recent things that I wrote. Novelty exists in the character Eamon while relying on base concepts it starts with him lying to his wife about gambling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you rely on tv tropes i have created a character who can only go one way which is that like he's a degenerate gambler that's tearing his family apart where the novelty kicks in and allows him to be his own character is that his wife never even asked him to stop fucking gambling And now his wife is like incredibly confused why he lies about it or why he promises it when she didn't ask, and then breaks the promise she never asked him to make in the first Mm -hmm. place, which allows concepts, dilemmas, and conflicts to evolve. Yeah. Which goes back to which goes back to the final thesis that I always make, which is always be on the lookout for conflicts. Always. And use every tool, every mechanism, every pulley to create rich conflicts. And uh, and throw more lesbians then. Uh, and apparently, apparently, just forty cc of lesbians fixes everything. Yeah, now we're back to go read Gideon the Ninth, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can always throw in some haunted house bisexuals. I'm just saying, there's cottagecore lesbians. There's a lot of them. We're also out here. The you haunted say house a haunted bisexuals. house bisexuals, but you haven't fucking read Gideon the Ninth. Have you fucking looked at the cover of Gideon the Ninth, right? Like. <laughs> uh, how do you feel before we check out here? I'm curious, Sean, how you feel about the weight of the opening lines uh, where it says, like, she shoved in her rations, her clothes and her dirty magazines. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. You- is it, that is for to use the TV tropes mode. That's her establishing character moment. That's her vibe. Right. Like that. She's a fucking like she has absolutely no focus in life. Right. Like, and the things she values aren't the things she values at all. Right. Like with the exception of sword, the sword is what she values. That she's like a survivalist and a hardcore escapee who's planning this. Never mind. Wait, 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 wait. Andy Dufresne, leave the poster up, you idiot. Right. Like, <laughs> uh, and that's what Gideon is. Uh, so, yes, I think this has been an episode. Use police, write lesbians, read Gideon. Uh, next week. Don't read TV troops. Don't read TV troops. Only read TV tropes if you're trying to remember some fucking like YA book that you think was part of a series, and then it'll always turn out to be Animorphs. There, it's always Animorphs. Yeah. Well, it's also <laughs> great because Chat GPT is going to replace TV tropes to a yeah, certain absolutely. degree because TV tropes like biggest failing is that there is no way to like index search it for something, 
as we talked about, you like have to go to snatch and and reverse engineer it. Mm-hmm. Whereas we're finally getting AI, and this is going to be so helpful to writers. We can just say, what are a bunch of characters that are like kind of affable, but also have certain like Asmodian qualities, not Mephistophelian specifically Asmodian, uh, and are about <laughs> forty to forty-five? And the AI will go here. You go. <laughs> here is a list of characters, including two original characters I just designed, right? And it's like it's not going to be very good, but it's going to be really good for creating a taxonomy because that's what fucking AI is really good at: is fucking yeah. putting things in categories and regurgitating those categories. Humans are better at so much the fuck else. But this has been an episode in the link to the description. You will get to all of our socials as well as our Discord, where we hang out, post links to submissions. Thank you, MJ. You just posted some today, I guess, right? Um, mm-hmm. Today or yesterday. I'm not sure which. I think you posted, I posted post something today. I think it might have been a meme. Oh, yeah, yeah. The one about poets and poetry, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, get some writing tips with the horse's mouth, talk about what you're working on, and talk about, like, uh, the general stuff you can get up to as a writer. It would help us a lot if you could give this episode a like, maybe leave a review, maybe share it with a friend who's interested in writing and TV tropes and tell them, no, bad, leave, be gone, be gone from this place. Uh, But above all else, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.